this sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. About 20 years ago last month, I dropped on one knee and I put a ring on Vanessa's finger. It was an exciting time. We were thrilled to be getting married and we were like, I was a brand new Christian practically. We were going off to seminary. It was, we were thrilled. And by God's grace, we made it through a year living down the hall from one another, being engaged. Amen. Praise God. It was a hard year. Uh, but one of the things is as we started to do all of the planning for the wedding, it was, it was exciting. And, and we were like putting in all this effort. But one of the things that was particularly challenging was figuring out the guest list. The guest list, because, you know, as we thought about the guests, like, who are we going to invite? Like, who should be at this thing? And it was really giving me a little bit of anxiety because I started to realize that who's on your guest list, the people on your guest list, says a lot about who you are. And I wondered what would people conclude about me based upon the people I put on my guest list. What would people conclude about what me and Vanessa are like as they observe the guest list on our wedding day? Because the guest list was the surest way to reveal something about our hearts. In our text for today, Jesus gives us a picture of what God is like by telling us about the people who are on his guest list for an invitation into the kingdom. This guest list is a reflection of who God is and what God is like. And if we're being honest in here this morning, we know that many of us, the way that we have experienced the church or the things that we've heard from the church, our observations of church people have led us to conclude that God is a certain way, mostly He's restrictive. He's out to control you. That he really like saps the joy out of life. We draw these conclusions about what God is like. And I want want my non-Christian friends in here to know that there is no hiding the failures of the church in terms of representing the Lord. There's no hiding that. And any honest Christian's are going to tell you there are many ways and many times in many places around the world where the church has failed. But what we want to encourage you to do is see through the failures of the church to the God who is represented on the pages of Scripture and ask yourself a question. In these failures, has the church accurately represented who this God is? Could it be the case that I am so frustrated with what I have observed in the church that I'm missing something of the hope and the goodness that is offered to me by God. I want you to give yourself the opportunity to rethink what your thoughts about God are, to re-examine what the scriptures say about God based upon who is on his guest list. Who is, who is he telling us is going to be represented at his feast. He wants all the people of the world to know that in him, they can find true belonging. 
That's the story today. We have been walking through a series where we talk about the truth of the gospel, why the gospel is good news. And what we're doing is we're talking about the true gifts of the gospel that come to us and how they are distinct from the false promises and the false offerings that our culture is trying to give to us. And so today, I want you to turn with me to Luke 14 as we consider true belonging by looking at two points, the image of a banquet and the invitation to a banquet. Those are our two points, the image of a banquet and the invitation to the banquet. So let's look at our first point, the image of a banquet. Now, as we come to this text, it's important for us to understand that in context, Jesus is delivering this teaching while he is being hosted at a party. And at this party, a ruler of the Pharisees has invited all of his fancy friends to his fancy party because that's what fancy people do. They have their fancy party, they invite their fancy friends, and everyone feels good about their fanciness, and, and Jesus finds himself in the midst of this party because by this point, he's become a popular rabbi. He has name recognition. They, at this point, you had to put some respect on his name because he has gained a big following and people are curious and he's doing miracles and healings and, and people are wondering, who is this character Jesus? He's a big deal. So he finds himself at this party. And what Jesus begins to tease out for us as he engages in some teaching here is he begins to point out the fact that there's more than what meets the eye in this gathering, in this party. Because what Jesus is gonna show us is that for the host, his hospitality was not about his guests. It was about himself. It was about the image that he wanted to project into the world so that he could have the kind of reputation that he wanted, so that he could have the kind of respect, so that he could be on the inside of the crowd he wanted to be a part of. This man was doing the work of hospitality, but it was a faux hospitality because it was all about self-actualization. It was all about him giving expression to who he wanted people to know him to be. Now, being at a party, a banquet, or a feast is nothing new for Jesus. Jesus is always eating and drinking with people. It's constant through the Bible. Particularly in the Gospels, Jesus is always feasting with people. But what you may not know if you're new to the Bible or you're new to the Christian faith or you're just coming back for the first time in a while, what you may not know is that parties, feasts, banquets were one of Jesus' favorite images for communicating to us what his kingdom is all about. I want you to stop and let that sink in for a while. One of Jesus' favorite images for what life in the kingdom is like, for what a relationship with God is like, was a party, a feast. Is that the way you think about God? Is that the way? Do you imagine the Lord with his arms folded, looking at you with a scowl, tapping his foot impatiently, or do you imagine God like the host of the most lit party you've ever been to? Music, dancing, joy, 
laughter, food, drink, celebration, joy, connection. Is that how you imagine God? That's how Jesus wants you to imagine him. And maybe at this very moment, you are realizing, I need to take a step back and reapproach this whole thing. Because here's the thing. One of the reasons why Jesus favors this image in expressing the kingdom is because this image has the capacity to get a hold of your heart and to get a hold of your imagination in such a way that the life that you live in this world will more beautifully communicate that witness, will more successfully communicate to your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers and your family who God is and what God is really like. And, and the other thing is this. You can only live for the kingdom. You can only enjoy the kingdom life to the, degree, to the degree that you can really imagine it as it is. If you imagine the kingdom as this place of austerity and severity that is devoid of joy, you have half of the picture because God is holy. And God is high and lifted up. And it is not difficult to see in Scripture that severity of God in certain circumstances. But Jesus is trying to fill in the picture and say, but there's more to God than that. And if you wind up in a relationship with him through faith, what you most powerfully experience of him is his joy and his love and his generosity and his welcome. That's what God wants to implant in you, that image, so that you can actually live into it. I want all of you young people to know that when you go off to college and people are gonna try and get you off track, they're gonna try and get you to believe that the church is limiting your freedom and that the church is killing your joy. I want you to always remember that you can arm yourself with this notion. Ain't no frat on this campus that can throw a party like my God. There ain't nobody on this campus that knows how to bring joy like my God. And the best you can do is just scratch at the deeper reality of what he does, who he is, what he gives. And so look. I ain't afraid of no party, but I'm not trying to get down on the premises that you're getting down on. Because the party is not the end-all, be-all. And many people go to party to try and get lost because they're hurting. And they use substances to try and numb the pain. But we don't come to the table in order to forget. We come to the table to remember. There's a difference, and, and every good party in this world is merely an echo of the greater party. That is, and that is to come. This is what the kingdom is all about. Check it out. The people who were at this party at the time, though, the Pharisees and religious leaders, they knew that this was the image of the kingdom. They were familiar with what the prophet said, like in Isaiah 25, when, he, when the Lord said, on this mountain, I will throw a feast of rich food and aged wine for all peoples. They knew that that image of the kingdom was a feast. But what they forgot is who was on the guest list. All peoples. 
They forgot who was on the guest list. And, and listen, at this point, I want to give a word of repentance on behalf of the church to our non-Christian friends. We have failed in many ways and at many times to communicate God as he is portrayed here to you. We have misled you at times because of our own failures, because of our own fearfulness and our own needs to try and control things. And there have been times where we Christians have thought we were making things better by trying to take control. And all we did was make a mess of things. And we ask your forgiveness for the ways that we have failed to represent this hospitable God, for the ways in which the life of our communities have failed to communicate to you that God wants you to belong in his kingdom. That is on us. That's our failure. But I also want to make something very clear to you. The fact that God loves people who are as jacked up and messed up as we Christians are is no fault in him. It's actually his glory that he makes room for people like us. And the takeaway that you should take away from this is this. If God can continue to bear with and love jacked up people like we Christians, then he most certainly can make room for you with all the drama that you bear, with all the mistakes that you've made. He still can make room for you. And that's just, the good news gets better because the same love that makes room for us to belong is the very love that will transform us. We won't always remain this way. Praise God. We are not Christians because we are superior people. We are very clear on that, which is why we confess our sins every week to stay in touch with that truth. We are Christians not because we are superior people. We are Christians because we have been found by a superior love and we've been welcomed into the feast. And as much as we are able, we want to reclaim our own calling in the world to let people like you know that you're welcome, that God wants you. Uncle Sam wants you, but he wants your taxes and he wants to, you know, put you at his purposes. But for God to want you is something altogether different. For him to want you is to want to set you free, is to want to redeem you, is to want to secure for you a sense of belonging that no one else can shake, that no one can take away, that no one can compromise, that does not waver with your performance and who you are. We're going to get into that in a little bit. This is the image, and I want this image to live in your hearts. I want this image to live in your minds. When you think about what God is like, think about him as the delighted host who is ready to pour out his joy on you, who spreads his table before you. And that is meant to shape the way in which you engage with our culture, our non-Christian friends and neighbors and coworkers, the people we care about so deeply. It's one thing to feel like you're inviting people into a very difficult road of discipleship, which it is. It is that. There is cross-bearing. There is self-denial, dying to self. We can't withhold that part of the message, but what makes that journey 
bearable. What makes that journey rich and joyful is that all along the way, we are also a feasting people. We're a people of joy because that is who God is. Now that we have this first point, the image of a banquet, I now want you to consider the invitation to the banquet, which brings us to our final point, the invitation to the banquet. So now this, this mealtime serves as a launch pad for Jesus' teaching about belonging, about hospitality, about the kingdom and its invitation. And Jesus is offering the Pharisees, check it out, even though Jesus blasts the religious people very often, he always holds out the opportunity for them to repent. Remember at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, the very first recorded words of Jesus that are meant to capture his entire ministry are this. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's the summary of Jesus' message. Even if it doesn't jive with pop versions of who Jesus is, this is the real Jesus of Scripture. And what he wants to do in telling this parable is he wants it to dawn on the Pharisees, the religious people, that they've missed it, that they've been in error, and they have excluded people that God includes. And that is what Jesus is doing here. But notice what Jesus does. Jesus, he, he made it real awkward at this party. Like, this was... This is what he did. Imagine this. Jesus is in the party. And he's observing who's on the guest list. And again, it's all the important people. It's all the, 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 the fancy people. And as Jesus observes the people that are there, he also observes the people who are not there. The blind, the crippled, the lame, the, the marginalized. And then this is what Jesus does. He gets into this this uncomfortable and awkward situation and he says to this man look at the text look at what Jesus says to this man he says <laughs> he says listen when you give a dinner or a banquet he's saying this to his host do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors like all the people who are here right now lest they invite you also in return and you be repaid but when you give a feast Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Jesus is telling this man, you already have your reward because you've only invited people who can invite you back, who can pay you back. Now, <laughs> here's what's funny. You can imagine how awkward it was in this moment, right? And, and Jesus looks around the room. He's told the host that he's only invited people to his party because of what he can get out of them. And not only this, but he's told the host that he has failed to invite a most important group. And it's sort of like record scratch. And then someone cannot bear the awkwardness of the moment anymore. And he says... Blessed are everyone who eat bread in the kingdom. <laughs> it's one of those awkward moments. But Jesus doesn't miss a beat. As soon as that man says that, Jesus said, I'm glad you brought up the kingdom. Let me tell you all a story. 
And then Jesus begins to give a parable because he's unrelenting and pressing in because he not only cares about those on the margins, Jesus is even gentle with those whose hearts are hardened by their religious exposure. They've heard too many sermons and have remained callous. They've been hearers of the word, but not doers. And Jesus even has compassion for them. And he wants to bring them around. And so he tells them this, this story. He says, speaking of that final kingdom banquet, that kingdom feast, that final kingdom party, let me tell you a story. He tells them the parable. And you see, the problem was not with the man's statement. It was the underlying assumption. The speaker who said, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom, assumed that he and his tribe, the religious uh, all-stars, were he just presumed that they were in the kingdom. And at the same time, he presumed that the others were not. He presumed like those people whose lives are a mess, those people who are poor, those people who don't smell right, those people who don't really have much money to put into the coffer so that it rings out and everyone knows how much they gave. Those people, Gentiles and, 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 and Samaritans and tax collectors and, you know, actually all the people you hang around, Jesus, there was a presumption that they weren't welcomed. Now, I want you to notice something. This is important. If you want to understand what you're signing up for when you sign up to be a Christian, it's, all, and it's not all rainbows and lollipops, okay? Don't, get, don't be deceived, right? In this life, you will have trouble, Jesus told his followers, and no servant is greater than their master. There are troubles and trials, but the feast still remains this image of the kingdom. And there are times when that feast breaks in. And we get tastes of that joy now. But there are difficulties in this life. But I want you to notice from this text that when you invite Jesus in, he's going to tell you hard things that you are going to struggle to hear. He's going to tell you about ways that you need to grow. He's going to tell you about things that you need to change. He's going to point out the things in your life that are killing you and sapping the life out of you. But he does all these things. He only ever gives you that hard word because he longs for your flourishing, because he wants you to really grow in love. He wants your life to be filled with joy. And so many of the things that you chase are stealing joy, and you think they're giving it. But Jesus is here to get rid of the illusions so that you understand true life through true belonging to God. Now, in this story, Jesus begins to develop, right? The invitation goes out, and it goes out to these people, and what you notice is that every one of these people comes up with a, a really lame excuse. Look at the text. <laughs> but they all, verse 18, but they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. In other words, he allowed his business interests to get in the way of accepting the invitation to the kingdom. He's building his real estate portfolio. He doesn't have time to slow down for that God stuff. 
The next man, <laughs> another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. You see, more financial concern. He was so focused on his money because cattle back then were money. That was currency and they helped you with your survival. He was so busy trying to survive on his own productivity and his fields that he planted that he ignored the invitation to the kingdom. And then, and then another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Now look, you can read all kinds of stuff into that. I'm not sure what happened if homeboy messed up and his wife was like, sit your butt down, you ain't going nowhere, right? I wish you would try to go to a party right now and we having this disagreement, right? I, I don't know if his wife was giving him an earful. I don't know if he was in marital bliss enjoying a honeymoon phase. But regardless, something around relationships that were more prioritized or sexuality caused him to ignore the invitation. And I think we have our own species of excuses that, that, that grow out of that same impulse. How often do we find that we have like disordered loves and our priorities are out of whack and we find ourselves more devoted to the things that are stealing life than we are to the only one who can actually impart life and cause life to flourish and fill us with joy and grace and goodness and change our entire trajectory. Isn't that, isn't that kind of silly? It's kind of silly. The excuses come in. And so what happens is that the servants come back and they come back to the master and they tell him about all the excuses. Because for these people to make these excuses and the nature of the excuses that they made, it was a great dishonoring to the master of the feast who had extended generosity, who had extended an open door. And for them to reject it was a great dishonor to him. So he says, you know what? I want you to go out to the, to the city streets and to the lane. And they're like, we were already on it, master. We already did that. And he said, all right, go even further. Go to the full extent. Go to the highways and the hedges. The picture that we get is of a group of servants scouring the world for people to welcome into the feast. Do you see the image? Because they know the kind of party that their master knows how to throw. They know the kind of joy that he's able to give. They have seen his goodness. They have seen his generosity. And they are now delighted to go out and tell people, hey, I know life is rough right now. Come into the feast. Come into the feast. You are suffering right now. Come into joy. Come into the fullness. Come and have your belly filled. Come and have your heart filled. Come and find connection. Know that my master believes you belong. That's the message that he goes out with. And what we see is a flipping of the expectations that the people that we religious folk tend to think are automatically in may not be. And the ones that we tend to think are automatically out are the ones that God wants. He wants, he wants you to belong. It doesn't matter what kind of brokenness is in your life. It doesn't matter what kind of uncertainty is in your life. It doesn't matter what kind of wounds you bear. 
It doesn't matter how much of a mess is behind you and how much the future looks like a mess to you. You have not yet met hope until you've met this God. You have not yet met love until you've met this God. You have not yet tasted true belonging until you've met this God. Don't you love how the the text says that the host wants a full house? He wants a full house. He wants the party popping off. Like, the, like imagine on those neighborhood party nights where we're all crammed in there and we're dancing and it's like, oh, there's hardly room. That is the image. God wants a full house. He wants all different kinds of people represented. The invitation still goes out, y'all, to this very day. It still goes out and, and the Lord will take any who respond. The kingdom is still like a banquet. The invitation still goes out because all is ready and people may come and enjoy the feast now. And the, there, are, there are a number of messages contained in this text. The first one is, listen, don't presume. Don't presume that you're in because you've, you've grown up going to church. It's a simple illustration, but, but just because you're standing in a garage does not mean that you're a car. And just because you're in church doesn't mean that you are a Christian. The text is saying, don't presume. It's not about what you did back in the day. It's not about you walking the plank, walking the aisle years ago at an altar call. It's about, do you trust in Jesus right now? Is he your only hope in life and in death? Do you know that it's faith alone in Christ alone that is your your true hope, your true security, your true belonging? Do you know that? Don't presume. But you know what? We're also, we're also given the message that we must not exclude. We must not exclude people. You can't exclude. You can't predetermine the types of people who are savable and the types of people who are not savable. Because no one in this world was more savable than any other. People throughout the church have often said the phrase that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. And what that is meant to say is that we are all equally desperate for the grace of God and the Lord, he delights, he desires to lavishly pour out his grace on all who ask. We must not determine that we have a seat at the table because we belong to the right group or because we have the right schooling or because we have participated in enough service projects. We, not, we must not presume that we already know who's not on that guest list. The people who are too bad, too broken, whose situation is too complicated, who seem to be too far from the kingdom in terms of their core commitments and beliefs. Here's the reality. Every person in this room and every person that you meet is hardwired for connection. It's hardwired with a desire to belong. It is a core need. It's on Maslow's pyramid, belonging, right? And no matter how we may try to project a strength and a I don't need nobody else kind of mentality, as much as as we like to sing our Beyonce, me, myself, and I, that's who I got in the end. What? Now, look, far be it from me to come for Queen Bay, 
but she's tripping. That is not the testimony of God's people. And it doesn't have to be your testimony. Because when you believe that, you live an exhausting life of self-making and self-protection and self-securing. And, and, and you are overwhelmed by the burden and you don't have enough room to care about anybody else. And you turn every single thing into a mere example of self-actualization. It's all about you and expressing your identity and emoting into the world. It's, it's, it's all about you. You become the center of your world and that is, you're ripe for implosion because you are not big enough to sustain the kinds of longings and desires that you have in your heart because God left his fingerprints on you when he created you. And only he can meet the needs that you have. We're in deep need of connection and we are restless until we find some place to belong. That is the reality about us. But sadly, we often settle for false belonging that's built upon weak connections. Listen to me. You can belong to a country club as long as you can buy your way in. But net worth is a weak connection that only offers false belonging. You can belong in certain social circles as long as you share their politics or their political orthodoxy. But shared politics is a weak connection that only offers false belonging. Whether it's connection built upon your looks, your talent, your likability, or your success, these can only offer false belonging based upon how well you perform the identity, based upon how well you, you perform your role for your group. In these versions of belonging, listen to me, in these versions of belonging, your status is always tenuous. It always teeters. If there is anything the last few years of social turmoil have taught us, it's that you can be loved by your group today and despised by your group tomorrow if you cannot maintain your performance of the shared identity. False belonging requires a dividedness between your projected self that you share and your real self that you hide. Now you tell me one thing, what kind of belonging is that? That you can't bring your real self? Yes, the you that thinks those crazy thoughts. Yes, the you that struggles with those anxieties and those fears and even a little paranoia, right? Like that you, the, the, the you that looked at what you looked at on the computer screen, that you. The you who selfishly has hoarded in the past to the detriment of people in need around you. That you. The, the world cannot accept those kind of people. And that's why we have wound up with this cancel culture. And you know why people lament cancel culture? Because we all know that if anyone found out about the real us, we'd be on the cancel list. And pretty soon the whole world would be canceled. The world cannot give you the belonging that you long for, it is not capable of giving it because they're all based upon your performance and you know how your performance goes, right? When you're tired, when you're feeling lazy, when you're sick, when you can't live up to it, when you break. I think some of you OGs remember when I broke in 2015. I was broke, felt like I needed a V8 for nine months like this. I was nauseous feeling like what I imagine pregnant ladies feel like in the first trimester. That's no joke. That was me. And guess what? 
That's because I was trying to hold my own life in my own hands, and I was trying to create my own healing, and I was trying to create my own sense of belonging, and I was trying to use my meager resources to fix my junk, and God made my coping mechanisms break so that he could heal me, so that he could give me true belonging, so that he could give me true security. Yes, even preachers, desperate for the grace of the Lord, desperate to belong. Like Augustine, I give you the bread upon which I feast. This grace, this Jesus. I think from a text like this, we need to ask a question. Who would we expect to have a seat today who might be refusing the invitation? And who, in our context, would be invited against our expectations? Who are those people for you? I want to tell you that what really gets to our heart here is that the Father sent his servant, Jesus Christ, out to the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame of this world. That is, he sent his servant, Jesus, to us with, with the invitation to come into the feast. Jesus offers us true belonging that is grounded not in our ability to return the favor, but in his generous and gracious character. Though we were sinners who had no claim to belonging in his holy presence, the Lord welcomed us. Though we were rebellious enemies of his glorious kingship, he befriended us. When we were at our worst, Jesus gave us his best the Lord knows the real you, and even still, he welcomes the real you into his feast. Not the curated social media you, not the photoshopped, airbrushed, Instagram filtered you. No, the real needy, broken, anxious, insecure, dysfunctional you. He wants you. Do you see it? We come to know what God is like through his guest list. And if he, if he has people like this included on his guest list, if, 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 if this is what he wants to do for the, for the marginal, the weak, the hurting, the religious outsider, the spiritual outsider, doesn't that seem to indicate to you that this is the kind of God you could trust? If this is what he's like, if this is what he longs to do in your life, I want to encourage you to think about that. And those of you in here who know Christ is your, is your life, we who have found true belonging in Christ have now received the noble calling of being his servants who go out to the highways and the hedges to give his invitation to those people. Now we go to the boardroom, the classroom, and the courtroom. We go to PhDs and GEDs. We go to nursing homes and broken homes to tell people to come into the feast because everything is now ready. Joy and urgency should be the note for us. And I want to tell you, I've been reading like mad here lately. There are two things I want to lay on you, and then we're going to shut it down. The first, I'm reading a book called The Great Dechurching, okay? And here's the flyover. What the book does is it begins to get into different categories of people who have dechurched. And what he means by de-church is that they used to attend church at least once a month, and now they don't attend more than once a year. 
40 million Americans are now de-churched. And what they make the case about is that this is the greatest religious shift that we've ever seen in the history of this country. Bigger than the great awakenings combined. That's the bad news. You know what the good news is? In the study of the profiles, the, the vast majority of those folks did not leave the church for doctrinal reasons. They left for social and experiential reasons. And the main upshot of the book is that many of those millions of people would come back to church on a simple invitation. 90% of our neighbors would come back to church on an invitation. And the data says that 89% of Christians don't invite anybody. Let that sink in. Do you know how powerful your invitation could be? If you think this is the kind of place where people can have the space to journey, that has some fun and some joy, that has some substance, if, if you believe in what God is doing here, the word is invite. Invite. What's the worst that can happen? They can deny the invitation. But remember this. You're inviting them into a party. You're inviting them into a feast. And, and, and the last thing I want to say is um, I'm, reading, I'm reading a book also right now. Um, Rodney Stark is a sociologist of religion, and he wrote, he's written a number of paradigm-shifting works on the history of the church, on the sociological developments in the church. And he talks about how there, uh, in one of his works, he talks about how there were 10 pillars uh, that caused new religious movements of all different stripes to be successful, to, to, to last for generations and to actually grow. And he says that the eighth feature of these new religious movements and their, their success is that they sustain strong internal connections while remaining an open social network that is able to maintain and form ties to outsiders. The eighth feature of any new religious movement that is successful, that grows, that lasts, is that the internal community is thick, but not so thick that outsiders can't break in. It's thick, but it's not a click. Come on, somebody. I just came up with that right now. Thank you, Holy Ghost. Okay. So what we want to do is we want to think about having thick community that does not turn into a click. And we want to invite people. Those are my simple applications. The feast is ready. The Lord wants you and your neighbors. Let us make him known and his welcome known so that our neighbors may come to know themselves, not just as belongers to God, but belongers to this community. And sometimes the only way they'll become belongers in the kingdom is they first become belongers in God's church. So let's pray that God would make it so. Amen. Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.